Okay. Excellent. Thank you. Okay. Welcome, everybody, to Monday morning's Dhamma talk. And I promised, I said I promised the day before also, but today I really, uh, hopefully, I was going to say try hard. I'm not going to try hard. That would be making a hypocrite out of myself to talk about the breath meditation and why the breath meditation. And I've told a few other stories which could already, which could elucidate what the breath meditation is, why the breath meditation, and how it fits into things. And in the big picture, in order to calm everything down, for things to start to disappear, so that, as the Buddha said, if you want to find out the nature of pure gold, you have to make it just 100% gold and nothing else to take away all the other trace elements which happen to be in there. When you've got 100% pure gold, then you can find out its properties. And that was one of the similes he used uh, for the mind. This mind, they call it chitta in Pali, exactly what is it? It's an important part of a human being. But now, how many people really understand what it is? Often we're told what it is. We believe what we're told. That's one of the reasons, whatever I say here, please don't believe it. Not even that. Don't even believe that you should not believe what I tell you. <laughs> okay, that's a joke. <laughs> sort of. But anyway, maybe it's too early in the morning for such intellectual jokes. <laughs> but nevertheless, sometimes a little saying which I concocted years ago, never allow your learning to stand in the way of truth. Because what you were told might be correct, but somehow you misunderstand it. And that's one of the reasons why the truth is your direct experience. And that's right here. And so as long as you're not misinterpreting it, you're seeing it clearly, what sometimes we call bare awareness. But what actually is bare awareness? Bare awareness means you're aware, but the five hindrances are not uh, in action. And those five hindrances are basically wanting, not wanting, or denial, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry, and uh, doubt. And each one of those are very, very profound. Even the hindrance of doubt, that was one thing which for years I couldn't understand what exactly that was. It was something that even Socrates said, that no one thinks they're wrong. Even the most stupid person thinks they're right. And if you find out you made a mistake, yeah, you, you acknowledge you made a mistake, but you're right about the fact that you made a mistake. Either way, it's just the nature of the human mind. We always think that what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, even know, is correct. That's why it's very dangerous. So the only way we can trust what we're seeing or hearing or knowing is actually to have those five hindrances absent. So there's no wanting, there's no denial, and you are clear enough, not that with the dullness of sloth and torpor, not with the restlessness, of, or they say this special type of restlessness, the remorse, that you can't stay long enough to penetrate into something. And it's also this lack of doubt. Now, doubt is a weird thing because I know that so many times, even when people are meditating, they do see lights. That's part of the nature of the meditation. I'll talk about that later on. The nimittas, we call them. And sometimes when they realize they're important, Quite often, they see those nimittas and they come and talk to me about them and say, yeah, that's a nimitta, but you don't believe it. About 99% of people who see nimittas or think they see nimittas actually do. That's just uh, all this experience uh, talking to you in interviews over so many years. But why do you have that doubt? That is like a hindrance to you. And on other occasions... Again, I'm going off subject again. That on some of the meditations, sometimes you can get some memories of early life memories. I can't talk about past life memories because that's kind of banned for me as a monk to reveal those things. But 
I know the loopholes in the Vinaya. That's one of the reasons why when we did the ordination for the nuns, like Ayasevi, that uh, I think all the other senior monks, in, especially in Thailand, they knew that I was an expert on these, the Vinaya, and so they couldn't really argue with me. They couldn't say it was wrong, because I knew it was right. But anyhow, that when you um, uh, know exactly what you're doing, uh, when you, are, you have some of these experiences in meditation, do you really doubt them or what? And one of those experiences years ago was just remembering an early life memory, not a past life memory. So that's where I get off on a loophole. You can't say that I'm telling lay people about psychic powers. Well, kind of, but you know, they said about past life memories. This is early life memories. And for me, that was just you know, meditating and asking myself this question, what's my earliest memory? Very simple like that. And then just getting the, a memory of being a baby in a pram, being pushed by my mother in London when I was maybe, I don't know, maybe a few weeks old. That's a really early life memory. And the interesting, I won't go into all the details about it, but the most, one of the interesting parts of that, there was absolutely no doubt at all that that was a real memory. I was re-experiencing sort of the past. And that was something at the time I never paid too much attention to. But over the years, I kind of thought, how come that that was like a memory, sitting meditation, fully awake after a nice deep meditation, how come that I could have no doubt at all that that was me as a little bub you know, a few weeks after birth? It wasn't a fantasy, it wasn't a dream, it wasn't imagining it, it was real. And it's only afterwards, I was a slow learner, that I realized that you know, once those five hindrances are gone, that's when you can access those previous life or early life memories. And because those five hindrances were gone, this is what the absence of doubt felt like. It was clarity, just like, honestly, even more clear than when you're alive right now, because sometimes even now you think of maybe a bit of sleight of hand or something, you might be tricking somebody. But this was actually so true. And that's what actually the doubt is. So in order to overcome those five hindrances, so what you do see, even in this moment here, is absolute tr is truth. You're not distorting anything. That's where you do need the stillness of meditation. And to get that stillness of meditation, the Buddha recommended sort of the breath meditation. There are other ways, but the breath meditation goes to the heart of the meditation. And the reason is because you know, we have to somehow or other let go of these five senses and the body as well. And sometimes you can just have a look at all the other people in this room and just see how many people can stay still. How many people just have to move this, have to scratch that, have to even blink their eyelids, have to scratch the something or other. Sometimes you can do that, have to move their, their legs, have to laugh. <laughs> you can see just how many people just have to scratch the back of their neck. You're doing nothing wrong. That's just the nature of human beings who have a body. The body is always irritating. Because it's always irritating, though we've got used to it. So we don't know. We don't realize this is ordinary. Just having to you know, move my hand, you know, sneeze, move my head. But how many people can sit absolutely still for an hour or two? Very few. The reason is this body is always demanding of attention. But that's one of the reasons why you can't focus on sort of something long enough to really penetrate into it. The body is always disturbing you. So anyway, our job in meditation is to keep this body so still that it could literally disappear and it's not worrying you at all. It's like one problem which is off your desk, finished for a while. And how to actually still that body is not an easy task. And to give you the example, which uh, the one I usually say to emphasize 
exactly what I'm talking about here. When I first came to Australia 37, eight years ago or something, that a gentleman came to see both Ajahn Chakra and I, he was my senior, and said he had imported the first sensory deprivation chamber uh, into uh, Western Australia. It was a tank uh, which was uh, light tight, so when you went inside it, you could not see anything. It was soundproof and you floated in, in this salty water, which was at your, um, the same density as your body. So basically you just floated in it. So you didn't have any pressure in any of your limbs. So you wouldn't get any sore knees or sore back. You just floated and the water was at room temp as a body temperature. So you could hardly feel the water. And what else was there? Obviously there's no smell. And so it was like sensory deprivation. You can go in there, they shut the lid up, and you had no physical feelings, no sound, no sight. And it was supposed to be really interesting for calming people down and getting into some, I thought, for getting some deep meditation, easy. You didn't have no mosquitoes in that. That's what was <laughs> always just bothering me when I was in Thailand. But here, it had nothing at all. No sight, no sound, it was all cut off and just uh, very comfortable floating in warm water, your body temperature, and no pressure on any part of your body. But anyway, because of seniority, Ajahn Chakra got in there first. He went there the first day. And then I was there to go in it the second day. But I never got in. And the reason was, because after Ajahn Jakra went in this sensory deprivation chamber, we saw somebody actually brought the local newspaper to us. I think it was West Australia. It's a big advertisement. Sensory deprivation chamber, as used by Buddhist monks. <laughs> he just basically conned us into allowing us to go in there for free so that he could advertise this, what we use. So I never got to go in there. Mm. <laughs> But nevertheless, of course, I questioned him, what was it like in there? He said it was really comfortable because, you know, you're just floating in, in this salty water at, you know, your, at your body temperature. He said you could hardly feel anything. It was just so quiet in there. And just you can't see anything. So what were you focusing on? He said, but then with all of those other distractions taken away, <sighs> his breath was really loud and now that was wonderful he told me that because that emphasized the point that you can relax your body as many of you do do you do a scanning of the body and meditations in order to calm everything down so you can be still. Is that still causing you trouble? Okay. Know that whenever you do really good things, it's this being called Mara who always tries to interfere when you do really good talks. That's what he did yesterday and now he's back again. It's one of the reasons why we made our city center in the suburb of No Latmara. <laughs> so Mara behaves over in there because we told him off. But anyway, so that once um, one of the problem is looking after the breath and maybe calming it down so it doesn't make any noise. So that's one of the reasons why when the Buddha taught the Anapana Sati Sutra, first of all, as I mentioned the first night, okay, you can do something? Okay. First of any any luck? I disappeared. You see, all you need to do is to say, enough Mara, get out of here, and then stop messing around. Anyhow, so once the uh, first night, first uh, morning, 
I said that one of the important things to do is learn how to let things go. So it's a preparation. You know, make mindfulness very strong before you even start watching the breath. And I'll reinforce that now because I don't have any trouble washing the breath. It's easy. Of course, it's the breath, it's always there. It's not as if I'm trying to watch something which ain't there or which I've got to look for. Where's it gone? Where's my breath gone? Where did I put it? So it's always there, so it's just easy to watch. So one of the reasons why people have difficulty in breath meditation, first of all, is they go looking for the breath when they're not ready yet. And it's one of those reasons why, to get your body comfortable, establish some mindfulness in front of you, or not in front of you, as a priority. Be in this moment as best you can and you know, learn how to enjoy this moment. This is one of the wonderful, easy things to do at Jhana Grove. You don't have to do anything here. You know, you don't have to plan what you're going to have for lunch. I don't know what I'm going to have for lunch. It just comes. The same with you. I don't know who's bringing lunch today, but whatever comes, it's always very nice, very delightful. And so you do have choice. Do you have much choice for lunch here? Yeah, you do. Okay, I always have choice. It's take it or leave it. <laughs> anyway, so once you have um, sort of no worries at all, maybe the only job you have to do, maybe do some duties like washing up afterwards. You don't have to think about that, do you? Even the washing up, we have a washing machine. And sometimes I was talking with the monks about this that. Uh, uh, now we were going to have a make a resolution this afternoon with the monks to, you know, with the money we raised on a continuity to get an electric vehicle. So we can do away with anagaricas. <laughs> we self-drive cars. And then we thought, well, do away with the anagaricas, have to drive us into town and drive us here, drive us all over the place. What about the cooking? And somebody did show me that there's, there are actually robots already <laughs> who, can, who can do fish and chips. They, sh they showed me one. So, so, so they can do noodles for you, or whatever else you like, dumplings. It's very easy to program a robot to do that. So after a while, we won't need cooks. So you don't have to do anything. All you need to do is just come in here, sit in meditation, and everything else will be done for you. Would that be good? <laughs> Thank you for saying no. Because sometimes we always need to do something, as long as it's not too much, so we can have enough time to relax and rest and be able to sit here without needing to um, do anything with our body. It's nice and calm. I'm 71 years of age now. I should have some aches and pains somewhere. Of course you do sometimes. But when you meditate... It's so brilliant, you know how to relax the body so much that everything becomes so at ease, so comfortable. And that's why you can sit still. You don't hold it still with force. You let it be still with joy and happiness. And that was one of the important insights which you, know, you realize is also key to deep meditation. Even just when I just scan through my body and relax it all, there comes a time when the body is so relaxed, it doesn't fall asleep. The body just tingles with a sense of joy and delight. And of course that happens. Sometimes people get massages or they go on recliners at the beach or they go in a, a spa. I know that one of the the monks was always asking me, can we get a jacuzzi? I don't know what a jacuzzi is. So I always say, no, what is a jacuzzi? <laughs> anyway, <coughs> anyway, it's supposed to be you know, like a hot tub. You can just relax all the muscles in your, your body and you're supposed to be so at ease. You don't need that. You do that just as well by sitting down and relaxing your body. So it feels just so rested, relaxed all over. Not only is that good for your health, but you do get this you know, feeling of 
delight, a tingling, I call it a tingling feeling. It's very hard to find the names for these feelings, but it feels very wonderful. And at first I was a bit disturbed. This is delightful. Aren't you supposed to feel pain in, in Buddhism, in spirituality? No pain, no gain. It's all suffering, okay? So wipe that smile off your face. It's suffering. What are you doing? But of course, that you know, this was something which the Buddha never said you should just go looking for pain. Just relax the body when it does feel delightful. The result of that is actually you, you get more relaxed once you notice that delight. And whatever you do, whatever becomes very relaxed and peaceful, it always carries with it a sense of delight. And it also means, I know now my body is relaxed, when I notice that delight. And that's also what happens when you start uh, going into the present moment. The present moment is delightful. Look, you're here in Jhana Grove, you've got nothing to do. It doesn't get better than this. And I'm not just saying that, I mean, that's true. You've got nothing to do here, nice and peaceful. You know, you just, who knows, you might get enlightened. It's a pretty good, good deal, isn't it? You get a nice lunch coming up soon. So, you delight in the fact that today you're free. It's Monday today. Many of you will be at work today. Now you've got no work to do at all. A free day. And your boss, me, is not going to tell you off. And I'm not going to give you more work. I'm going to give you less work, less to do. That's a pretty good deal. And who knows, I might even tell you one or two jokes, if I can figure, <laughs> figure one. So, anyhow, that when you appreciate this moment, it does get delightful. I'm talking about appreciation. Oh, what joy to have freedom today. I don't want anything, don't need anything. I'm just going to be here enjoying this moment. When you enjoy the present moment, of course it stays. If you try and let go of the past and the future, but you're not enjoying the present, it might well go back into the past and future, seeking for something to enjoy itself. I do remember I was a school teacher for one year, trying to do something normal before I became a monk. <laughs> it made it easier to talk my mother into letting me go and be a monk if I you know, had the start of a career. But anyway, <laughs> so when I was uh, that school teacher, when the first year I was just learning all the ropes, so you come back from the school really exhausted. I remembered all I would do with being English, put the kettle on, get a cup of tea and turn on the TV, anything to watch because I was just exhausted. And I remember those times whenever you are exhausted, sometimes you do look for any stimulation, past or future, because for you the present moment is not nice. So you know, when you come back exhausted, present moment's not nice. But later on in life you realise that, no, stay in this present moment. And it kind of opens out to you. It's like a, a flower which, which opens, which blooms for you. And you see just how wonderful it is in this moment. You don't have to go anywhere. It's delightful just to be now. So, you know, for me that was a great insight which allowed me to let go of the past and the future and then with the silence which comes next. I say comes next because the silence, you stop giving things names. Who are you anyway? What's my name? Does anybody know? It really depends on who's doing the talking. My mother would never call me Ajahn Brahm. She said, I gave the name Peter and that sticks, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but even Ajahn Brahm, 
you know, the, the name given me my precept was Brahma Wangso. That's such a long name, so I shortened it to Brahm just for your convenience. You know what Brahm means? No, I just mean that. <laughs> what Brahm means is B for Buddhist, R, Roman Catholic, A, Anglican, H, Hindu, M, Muslim. <laughs> if you're Jewish, I apologize. <laughs> it's not in there. And they make it a bit more warm and more fun to say. And Ajahn was just the, the, being a teacher. Here in this monastery, anyone over 10 reigns, they can call themselves teacher. Like, we've got three teachers over there. We've got Ajahn Seri. Is it 13 reigns now? Well, that's unlucky. <laughs> and we've got Ajahn Suvijana. How many reigns have you got? 13. 13 too. Oh, that's, a, that's why Venerable Ajahn Chanda sits down there because it's bad luck up the top there. <laughs> <laughs> How many reigns have you got now? Okay, that's enough. Anyway, <laughs> sorry. So, but you know the full name is if I sign anything in Thai when I had to sign the the form for the katina, so all katina was Pratwisudi uh, Sangwaratera. Did you get that? <laughs> so you have oh, so many different names. Which one is the, the right one? Because none of them. It's nice to have a few aliases. <laughs> and sometimes you have fun like that. One of the times where we enjoy just being a nobody is the time when I was in uh, Vietnam at one of the conferences. Again, I love going to conferences because in the conferences, a lot of the people don't know who you are. So I gave you know, the talk I'm supposed to give, so that's up on the stage. But then I was listening to other people give their talks. And so I remember just going into one of the talks and sitting in the back. And then this monk came up to me, he was a Vietnamese monk, he noticed I was Western. And so he wanted to practice his English. That's what you know, young monks do. So he came up to me and said, where are you from? I said, I am from Australia. He said, oh, you are from Australia? I said, yes. And <laughs> I'm not making this up, this actually happened. He said, oh, do you know a monk in Australia called Ajahn Brahm? <laughs> I said, yes, I do. <laughs> He's a very good monk. Yeah. <laughs> well, I am Ajahn Brahm. Ah! <laughs> he actually went like that, went, ah! So I'd have a bit of fun and games. But anyway, um, so that when you are still, you don't give things names. You get much deeper into reality. Even at night time, I told the monks this so many times that of course I was into science, theoretical physics, and also astrophysics as well. So I remember as a young man learning the names of all the stars and no, not just the constellation, the stars and what was a planet, what was a, uh, a galaxy. And I thought that would be helpful for me. But then at night time you go and see the stars and then all you saw was the names. I couldn't see the beauty anymore, honestly. So I deliberately just unlearned so the names of those stars and galaxies, it wasn't important to me anymore. So once again, I could see the beauty of the, of the stars at night instead of their names. And there's something really amazing in that. You give too many names to things and that actually defines them for you. And rather than realizing that those names are only approximations, it's alternative names. So because of that, you learn the beauty of being still. And the mindfulness 
then achieves what I call it, its workability when you are in this moment and you are still. And then of course, what do you do with that mindfulness? You don't put it on the breath. You let the breath come to you. And it always does. Your body is at ease. You're in this moment, you're not asking for anything, you're not in any fantasies or dreams. You're not sort of giving yourself a philosophical discourse. You're just being aware in this moment, silent, and seeing what comes. And of course, that's when the breath comes very clearly. It comes to you. And I'm being honest with you, I never go looking for my breath anymore. Just sit down there, make sure that my body's relaxed, your mind, you're silent, you're aware, so silent you're in this moment, and then the awareness of the breath comes. And when it comes, other people have confirmed this, that when you go looking for the breath and go and grab it, it's never as peaceful and as comforting as when it comes to you. And that's all which needs to happen. In meditation, remember that first simile which I gave of sitting in the mango orchard? You sit perfectly still and the mangoes fall. That was Ajahn Chah's simile. So I made another simile years ago. And this was a simile because uh, I still remember this Japanese monk when I was a lay Buddhist uh, coming uh, to, and that's, that's another simile, another Japanese simile. No, okay. Well, I'll tell this other simile first anyway. He would actually, he came and he gave me some advice as a, I was a lay Buddhist. And he said, be careful, never write a book. I said, why not? He said, because according to his tradition, anyone who writes a book on Buddhism will have to spend the next seven lifetimes as a donkey. <laughs> How many books have I written now? <laughs> So please, if you ever see a donkey, <laughs> please be kind and that could be me. <laughs> of course, that was just a, an exaggeration. But nevertheless, you, know, you took that on board about the naming. Sometimes those books are okay just to give a little bit of um, understanding, but just it points the way it doesn't really just get into the truth of things. So, But anyway... The simile of a donkey always stayed with me. It's a very lovely animal. I could, yeah, I think I did already give one. Did I give the donkey in the well simile yet? Or was that the last retreat? No, no. But, so, the last retreat, okay, yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, I won't give it that, okay. But the other donkey simile, which is much better, much more appropriate for now, is a donkey is one of the most stubborn animals in the world. If you've got a wife or a husband or a kid you think is stubborn, they're never as stubborn as a donkey. You can hit a donkey and the donkey won't move. They even have that little phrase, I think, in English, as stubborn as a donkey. But nevertheless, you don't use a stick to hit a donkey. No one should do that. Instead, you tie the stick to the donkey's neck. So the front of the stick is about two foot in front of the donkey's head. And on the end of the stick, you tie a string. And on the end of the string, you tie a carrot. That's if the donkey is uh, European. If it comes from Indonesia or maybe Penang, then you can tie a piece of durian on the end there. <laughs> if, it, <laughs> if it is from Sri Lanka, you can tie a hopper on the end. What else? Nothing, I've got, got most of Yeah, okay, that'll do. <laughs> so say you tie a carrot on the end. Now that donkey sort of likes carrots. So the donkey will move towards the carrot. Because the donkey moves, the stick moves, the string moves, and the carrot moves. And that's how you get the donkey to pull whatever is tied behind it. It thinks it's just, not because it's afraid of the pain, because it wants to eat the carrot. 
and you notice the carrot is always inside. You can always smell it. It's right in front of you, but you can't quite reach it. When you move towards it, it moves away from you. And I love that simile because doesn't that like rhyme with your life? Sometimes you get enough money, enough good health, enough freedom, enough meditation, almost. Even just like the deep meditation, sometimes you see these nimitta lights in front of you. You go towards them and they go away from you, almost within touch. In life, you can see it's just over there. You just go towards it and it goes away from you. That's unfair. That's like your life. Look about, you know, just you work really hard and you know, save up some money and then it gets taxed. Or then you have kids and you waste all your money with your kids. And then after a while, eventually you can retire. You're retiring this year, aren't you, Prem? Are you? <laughs> and as soon as you retire, you get given other work to do by the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Buddhist Society of Western Australia. So you're never really free, are you? And if you don't work voluntarily for some Buddhist society, you know, your children have kids. You've avoided that so far. Well done, be careful. Make sure that your son doesn't get married and have kids, otherwise you're stuffed. <laughs> You have like rest and freedom. It's almost right there in front of you, but then ah, you get stuck again. So that's a lovely simile about life, but especially about meditation. Being able to get into those deep meditations, deep stillness, great insights. You can see it. It's almost right there in front of you, but you just can't quite reach it. And as soon as you go closer to it, it goes further away from you. But anyway, the donkeys have learnt how to catch that carrot or durian, whatever's right in front of it. You know how it does it. It runs like hell after that carrot, as fast as it can. Of course, it still doesn't catch it. But after running really fast, then the donkey stops. Stops dead still. And what happens when you stop dead still? You don't go looking for your breath or try, try and hold it. You just stop then the carrot goes further away from you. It swings further away because of its momentum. Sometimes when I teach people, don't try and focus on the breath. Just relax, let it be. What happens? The breath gets further away from you. It's not working, is it? Or is it? Because it goes further and further away. And soon the carrot is further than it's ever been before away from your mouth. But then something strange happens. Then the carrot starts coming towards you. You don't do anything. You just stand there and then soon that carrot is its normal place. You're used to it being there, two foot in front of your mouth. But now coming really fast towards you. And then as it swings closer to you, you always have to remember the most important, or one of the most important things is like loving kindness. Never you know, underestimate the power of kindness, metta. As a carrot comes closer towards you, you have to remember to say, carrot, the door of my mouth is open to you. <laughs> and let it come in. Because I remember seeing the big teeth of donkeys. And the donkey's got amazingly big teeth. If they don't open their mouth, it bangs against the teeth. <laughs> they, they don't get any of the great experiences. And that's how things happen. You've all been running fast after the carrot of deep meditation, insight, enlightenment, whatever you want. Now your job is to stop running. And sit here and just watch everything kind of fall apart. And then it comes towards you. And all these things, thank you. <laughs> it's a very beautiful simile, which means you don't need to plan, you don't need to think, you don't need to name. And that's what happens with something like the breath. It just it comes to you. 
people say, okay, maybe you were born in a weird place at Champam. I think my mum did say that I didn't have any hair when I was born. Came out bald. That's always an auspicious sign. <laughs> if you have a kid and they've got no hair. <laughs> but just, just when the, um, the breath comes up, what do you do with it? You're supposed to make, make it long, make it short, or make it this way or that way. Of course not. You leave it alone and let it settle down by itself. Your job is just to observe with kindness. You observe with kindness everything which you watch, in this case the breath, start to relax. And of course you can see the uh, medical reason why it relaxes, because you are not thinking very much, you're not worried, you're mind is not metabolizing that much. So your body's not metabolizing that much. And so of course you need less breath. Because you need less breath, everything gets more and more calm and more peaceful. And also you just start to see more of the breath. As you're watching it kind of opens up to you. You can start to see the beginning and end of the breath and everything in between. So those first two parts of the uh, 16 parts of breath meditation watching whether it's a, a long breath or a short breath, that is soon transcended by you can watch the whole of the breath. If you want to know what the whole of the breath is, it's just, uh, just watch my finger. I'm not going to hypnotize you. Okay, you're going to be present. No, <laughs> so you can see the breath go from your left, and my finger go from the left, all the way to your right, then from the right all the way to the left, without missing one moment of it. That's at the third stage of Anapanasati. First of all, it's going in, going out, going in, going out. See the whole movement of the breath, all the way, one in-breath. The space between the breaths, one out-breath, see all of it. That is what's called in Anapanasati Sabhakaya Pati Sangwedi. You see the whole of the breath. And I sometimes, and sometimes I just get frustrated with uh, even some senior monks. They say, no, that means being aware of the whole body while you're breathing. Goodness gracious, it's very difficult to be aware of the whole body. Are you aware of your left uh, earlobe? your right toe. It's impossible to be aware of this. Sabha means a whole lot. And also the word body does not mean physical body all the time. The word body in uh, Pali, kaya, it means the same as the word body in English, like a body of troops, a body of evidence, a body of dhamma, dhamma kaya. It has an idiomatic meaning as well. It does mean the whole of the breath, from beginning to end without missing one. So people will say they're focused. Yeah, you can say you're focused, but you didn't do the focusing. It happened naturally, because there's nothing else going on. Just the breath. Your body is relaxed, you're not thinking of past or future. What on earth else can you be aware of? So just watching the whole of the breath, going in and going out. And again, it does become delightful. Not fully delightful yet, but it's pleasant to watch. And then as it relaxes more and more, because you're doing less and less, that's the nice thing about the breath, it changes. Because you do less, it becomes more refined. Because it becomes more refined, you do less. And so it becomes very, very smooth and very still. Then sometimes you get to this, you do get to this point, and it's a simile in the Visuddhimagga commentary, but it's a, it's a valid simile. I, I argue against the commentary a lot, but suppose this was a piece of wood and I'm sawing it. When you start sawing a piece of wood, you can see the whole of the wood and the whole of the saw from the handle to the tip, but as you really focus in, the only piece you need to see is just those two or three teeth which are touching that and maybe centimetre of wood, that's all. You actually zoom in on it. 
And as you zoom in, I'll just the saw and the place where it's hitting the wood, you find you don't know whether that saw teeth is the beginning or the end or the middle or wherever. Because the saw tooth looks the same, the piece of wood looks the same, wherever you look at it. As you zoomed in, you lose the idea of it's the beginning or the end of a breath. You lose the perception of whether this is an in or an out breath. It's just breath. Experience of breath happening. You've got no clue at all. You don't have to because your mindfulness has got more refined now. This is the breath happening. You're simplifying things. And then, of course, when you simplify that, you calm down that experience of the breath. You simplify it. Then, of course, you do start to get the joys and the happiness coming up. In the fifth and sixth stage of Anapanasati, as the Buddha taught it, you start to experience pity and sukha. And that is the uh, eighth, no, sorry, the seventh stage, you know, you called, you experience that citta sankara. Okay, that's a Pali word, but that gives so much powerful evidence that what you're experiencing now is not the kaya sankara of a breath. This is a citta sankara. This is what the mind adds on to the feeling of breath. It becomes delightful. Really delightful. You're very happy just watching this breath. And you don't, it, almost you can't take your attention off it. You know that sometimes you see something beautiful and it's so wonderful you can't take your eyes away? I said, like you know, watching a movie or some sports match or see a wonderful sunset. Do you have to focus to see that beautiful sunset or does that draw you in? And so often you have to say it draws you in. It draws your attention to it. And that's what happens when you start to get the piti sukha, the joy and happiness coming up with the breath. The breath is delightful. And you notice how much, you don't fake this, you don't concoct it, you don't make it happen, it just is natural. And when that sort of stuff happens, you know, you're watching the breath, and it really is, see, the whole breath is very simple, very delightful, have a lot of joy inside of you. That is when, you know, you'll be meditating here and you'll miss your lunch. It comes to 11 o'clock and you know it's kind of lunchtime. You maybe hear a few people around you getting up. You have a choice. Go for lunch or enjoy the delightful breath. You know, in the end, it's not a choice. You know, you've got, you just, the delightful breath is so much more wonderful than going to eat some food. And that's one of the reasons why um, Noria told me to let you all know if it's in the morning and you're having a wonderful meditation, you miss your breakfast, you can have a breakfast anytime. The same, if it's at all possible, if you have a beautiful meditation and then you miss your lunch, I don't care what time you come out of the meditation, if you really feel you want to eat something, just go for it. It's worthwhile just bending those eight precepts so you're not afraid of really enjoying the deep meditations. But only if you have a deep meditation, not because you fall asleep. (laughs) (laughs) It's worth it. Because those deep meditations are priceless. And I don't want you to miss out because you think, oh, I've got to get some lunch. You don't need the lunch anyway. So anyway, this is what happens. And when you get to even those stages, wow, the meditation is really fun. And your mind remembers that. And it wants to meditate. This does become club med, not a torture chamber. And it's not a concentration camp. It's a blissing out camp. And that's why I teach. I want every one of you to enjoy the meditation like I enjoyed when I was a young monk. And not when I was a young man even. Because that just is so delightful to know that such peace, and that's only the start of it. 
such peace and joy can coexist. And of course, what happens next in Anapanasati? What do you do next? Nothing. Don't interfere by doing things and taking control. Everything is working fine. Leave it alone. Just let it happen. Your job is to be the passive observer. You're the passenger, not the driver. And when you let go more and more and more, everything gets so, so smooth. Again, that's why. Uh, please excuse me if I said the similes on the first day. The simile of the, of the um, aircraft of the future. Aircraft of the future, we only have two beings in the, in the cockpit. The cockpit, cockpit will be locked. There's only two beings in the cockpit of future aircraft. One is the pilot, the other is the dog. And the job of the pilot, the only job the pilot has in the cockpit of new aircraft, the only job is to feed the dog. And the job of the dog is to bite the pilot if he touches anything. I remember reading that in Air Asia in-flight magazine when I was traveling there around about somewhere some time ago. And I thought how amazing that simile is for meditation. If I possibly could, I would put a dog in your mind, which bites you if you do anything. <laughs> in other words, just relax and trust that when you don't do anything at all, that's where you're being calm and peaceful. And that's actually where the joy starts coming up and you start to see you know, the breath disappear. It's not a physical experience breath. The breath can be experienced either through the sense of physical touch, through the fifth sense, or through the sixth sense, through the mind. And this is where it's switching over from the physical experience of the breath to the mental experience of the breath. And of course, the mental experience of the breath is far more joyful and refined. That's where you're experiencing as piti sukha, as joy and happiness. And then as you're turning over from the physical sense of the breath, that's the last part of the five senses. And then you go into the world of the mind. So the, the joy and happiness of piti sukha is there. And it comes experience as a pure mind object. The, ninth stage of Anapanasati, you experience a jitta. And how do you experience it? Those are the nimitta experiences. Now, when you're experiencing a jitta, a mind, we do not have language for it. So it's hard to recognize. You know you're experiencing something, but give it a name, it's so tough. But because human beings are mostly visual uh, beings, that's our main um, sense of the five senses. That's why in our passports we have photographs of our face. That's why I can recognize you by what you look like. You recognize your room by just, you know, all the visual signals so you can get back into your room in the evening. Very few of you smell your way back into your room. <laughs> Dogs do that. But what it means is that because that's a major sense organ, that's the language which we've most developed. Yeah. 
want to see the trees and the sunset, go outside. If you want to see the rain and the you know that the windows are very high, very difficult to see the sun in these windows. You can be able to see that we put three, uh, three shutters on this side, that side, and that side. The sun never comes with that. For sure, this has to be a limiter. It's not somebody shining a light on you. If it's me, I've got to be careful because sometimes I'm sitting here and then Prem turns one of the lights on my face. Ah, oh, it's a limiter again. <laughs> no, it's Prem. <laughs> but no, it's almost certainly the case. It's a limiter and it's joyful. What you're seeing is like a reflection. I'm looking at your, your chitta in a mirror and getting to see it. Now one of the things sometimes when you see a nimitta, this uh, one of the attendants in this retreat I gave in Malaysia many years ago and I, I mentioned this in the talk that sometimes the nimitta is like a like a, a light, like a sheet of light and said so sometimes it's not all that uh, pure or bright, it's a bit dull and dark and a bit sort of splodgy. And I say, if that's what you see, that means that your precepts have been a little bit sort of uh, not well kept. And I don't mean just uh, because you broke a rule, you know, just eating in the afternoon or something. No, it's, it's worse than that, it's just... You know, you've harmed yourself or you've been slack, you've indulged yourself. And the interesting thing there is that if you see that sheet of whatever, sheet of light, and it feels a bit splodgy, this is, this is truth for you. You can't sort of fake it. You've done some sort of bad precept. You've hurt somebody, you've lied, or you've done something which you know you shouldn't have done. Because this is actually, you see, your mind. And it's not just imagination, it's true. Remember this, <laughs> this poor young man, he came up after us, Ajahn Brahm, is that really true? That if you see this sheet of light, it's all splotchy? It means you've broken your precepts or done something wrong? I said, yeah. Oh, sorry, Ajahn Brahm, <laughs> can I confess? <laughs> because, you know, he is just a young man, he hadn't done anything really bad, but, you know, he could have lived the day much better. This is actually where you see what precepts really are. It's not just keeping a rule for the, because it's a rule, because it's harming or hurting somebody or harming or hurting yourself. And you can't deny it, it's right in front of you, it's, it's affected your mind, it takes away its purity or its, um, its uh, brightness. But then I did tell him the, the loophole, how to get past that. But I won't tell you yet until we talk about Nimitas the next day. In the meantime, just be good, kind, wonderful people, and your Nimitta gets very bright. On the opposite side of that, there are some people, I've known them for such a long time, and they are really good, kind people. They never say bad things about anybody. And they're always there to help out, you know, to be kind, to be generous whenever you need anything. And those good people, and I've known them, and I just can't wait for them to see a limiter, see their minds, because I know when they do, it's gorgeous. They don't see any splodges of dirt anywhere. Wow! Your precepts, your goodness, your kindness, you even might say selflessness, that actually is an important part of the meditation practice. And then when you are simple things, just like you know, you know there's not enough bananas left for everybody and you love bananas. And then somebody else also loves bananas. You have one. You just give it to somebody else. Just kindness. That's sort of that purity of heart 
that is what really counts and it brightens up your chitta so much. You know, you see people act like that and it's just wonderful to see people act with such kindness and generosity and just uh, care for others. And that brightens the jitter up and that's when you see these beautiful limiters. And that just, well, uh, that's you. As close as you can get to an idea of a you. But nevertheless, well done. Okay, that's nine o'clock. So I did talk about breath meditation today. Yay! <laughs> okay, so we'll go on tomorrow with probably limiters. Is that a good idea? Okay, very good. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Excellent. So we have the interviews now. Uh, this afternoon, I've cut the interview short because this afternoon we, the monks are going to do the, their party mocha over in Bodhinyana Monastery. Now, I don't know if you've been told you can go over to Bodhinyana Monastery. The hall over there is a really powerful place to meditate, but please don't go over there today because the monks will be using it this afternoon, cleaning up this morning, using it this afternoon. Okay? Very good. Carry on.